um, at the end of the service, she was watching various people praying. And um, she leant over to me and said, um, do you know, I've no idea what they're actually doing. It feels as though, she said when she was young, she missed French for a week um, in school. And then when she got back to school, forever after had no idea what was going on. Because everyone else seemed to know what they were doing and she didn't know what they were doing. And she said, prayer seems like that for me. That I can see that everyone else is fervently doing it, but I don't know what they're doing. And I wish I understood it a little bit more. And we then ended up having a long conversation about prayer and what it meant. But I was, I'm always intrigued by reading the gospel accounts um, because the same thing happens in Luke's gospel just before Jesus tells them about the Lord's Prayer. Um, we read, he was praying in a certain place and after he'd finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And you can feel them watching Jesus while he's praying, going, what's he doing? Tell us how to do what you're doing. So our thinking this today, our explorations today, are around what prayer is, how Jesus teaches us about it, and actually then we'll go phrase by phrase through the Lord's Prayer and see if we can understand it a little better. But before we get there, I want to raise a few things about what we can understand about Jesus and prayer before we get into the Lord's Prayer. The first thing to notice is Jesus play, prays all over the place. And it may be that you notice in the Gospels that time and time again we notice Jesus was praying here, he was praying there, and that is interesting for those of us who are New Testament scholars. Because one of the questions that we often like to ask is how does that differ from the prayer we know about from the first century? What does it look like? Now we need to be really careful when we ask that question because it is very easy to assume that what we know about how first century Jewish prayer worked was actually simply all that um, first century Jews did and they didn't do anything else. Let's assume they prayed more than the law required but then let's also have a look at what the law required. And there are two things that come out of the law which are very interesting. The first is that there are three times in the day when they are required to pray. To pray. And they are at the time of the temple sacrifice known as the tamid. Um, they pray in the morning, in the evening, and overnight, so probably around um, nine o'clock in the morning, um, then probably around four o'clock, and then later on in the evening. Those were the three required times of prayer. And therefore, it is fascinating to notice that Jesus is praying, as I said earlier, all over the place at all sorts of different times. One of the things that we can learn from Jesus's patterns of prayer is that Jesus prayed when he needed to rather than because it was nine o'clock. And I think that's quite an important thing to recognise about the nature of Jesus' prayer. And it raises, I think, some interesting questions for us about, you know, when do you pray? Um, well, there are set times in the day when we might pray, but it's also interesting to notice that Jesus prayed when he needed to. The other thing that we know from the law is how people prayed. And this, I think, is really interesting. The most famous Jewish prayer from the first century is known as the Amidah. And the Amidah means the standing prayer. And it's called the standing prayer for a really good reason, because they stood to pray it. And if you think about what you know about prayer from the New Testament, um, think about the examples um, that are given of people praying, they largely are standing. And within Judaism, standing was how you prayed. Um, if you think particularly about that parable that Jesus tells about the Pharisee and the sinner, and the Pharisee is standing in the, in the temple to pray, and the sinner is crouched down in the corner, what is interesting about that is the Pharisee was doing exactly what the Pharisee ought to be doing. He was standing to say the Amidah. That's what he was meant to do. The contrast is the recognition of the sinner who was crouching down in humility. And I, one of the things I just think is very interesting about certain strands of Christianity, it's not true of all form of Christianity, it's that 
certain strands of Christianity, certainly one in which I grew up, took kneeling as the only posture for prayer. That was an innovation around the time of Jesus. Um, though I should note that I was always entertained when I was in ecumenical gatherings. You always had the parting of the ways in ecumenical gatherings. Um, I spent um, 11 years on the Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission, and people would say, let us pray. The Anglicans dropped to their knees and the Catholics all stood up. Um, and you could tell immediately which denomination people came from. Um, the other thing simply to notice is that it was usual at the time of Jesus to pray in the temple. Um, and we notice when we're noting Jesus praying that he prays in other places. Um, either, and there are two things um, to notice about where Jesus prayed, either he went up a mountain by himself or he prayed where he was. There was the two that we find um, over and over again in the Gospels. So I think it's quite interesting to note that Jesus both had a particular place where he liked to pray on his own and away, and then he, or he also had moments where he prayed exactly where he was in the middle of what he was doing. And that opening to Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer is endlessly fascinating. Um, it's almost as though he has broken off from talking to the disciples about who he was and the teaching um, to pray. And the disciples had to wait until he had finished praying before he carried on. So both in the midst of his daily life and also then um, he would go away. And one of the things we don't know, of course, is how he prayed when he was an upper, upper mountain by himself. By definition, he was up a mountain by himself, and therefore we don't know what he did while he was praying. I'd also just like to draw your attention to the opening phrase that the disciples say to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So the idea is that there was a way of praying that rabbis taught their disciples, and we know this from the first century, that there were rabbis um, all over in the first century who had a particular way of praying, and they taught their disciples to pray like that. What is fascinating is John the Baptist clearly also taught his disciples to pray in a certain way. The reason why I'm drawing your attention to this is that in Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, um, something slightly odd goes on, which we normally don't notice. And I want now to draw your attention so that you do notice. The disciples say, not, will you teach us a prayer, but will you teach us to pray? The two are quite different. And what for me is very interesting is that Christian tradition has assumed that when Jesus then prays the Lord's Prayer, that we pray day in and day out, he was teaching them a prayer. Actually, the evidence that we have from the first century, the way in which rabbis taught, suggests to us that actually it wasn't a prayer, it was a method of praying. And if you know that, it changes the Lord's Prayer entirely. So my first controversial wonder of the um, lunchtime is, what if we've been praying the Lord's Prayer wrong for 2,000 years? <laughs> what if actually we aren't meant to start at the beginning and channel our way through to the end? What if actually the Lord's Prayer is a series of headings that give us... The, if you want to know how to pray, you begin with the first phrase, and then you go on to the second phrase, and then you go on to the third phrase, and on we go till we get to the end of the prayer. And the evidence that I would put forward to suggest that this may in fact be the case is the fact that Matthew's version and Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer are different which suggests that they have been, if Jesus actually taught them a prayer, which way they then said by rote for the entirety of his ministry, the evidence would suggest that they would be the same and not different. Because it's different, either they heard differently and we had different versions of the Lord's Prayer, 
or in fact, they did use it as headings. You'll see what I mean when we go through the prayer. But I think it's worth um, um, chewing on and thinking about. And once I read about that, I began in my own prayer life to start praying the Lord's Prayer differently. And I commend it to you as a method of prayer. Um, it may not work for you, but it works very strongly for me. Which is, as I get up in the morning, I say the first phrase of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father. And then I spend some time reflecting on it. And then the next time in the day I have a gap when I put the kettle on, I say the next phrase in the Lord's Prayer and reflect on it. And then when I'm brushing my teeth, I say the next phrase. You get the idea. I won't go through my entire day. <laughs> um, but the, the thing that I've found that is very powerful about it is that it does genuinely provide us with really helpful headings that shape the prayer life that we seek to have. And if somebody says to you, I don't know how to pray, for me, the easiest and simplest advice that I can give is pray the Lord's Prayer phrase by phrase throughout the day. Do it um, handily. Lent is coming up. If you wanted to do something in Lent to shape your prayer practice, um, what if you took up praying the Lord's Prayer phrase by phrase during the day and see where it gets you? Um, I think, um, actually, it gets you quite a long way. Well, it's got me a long way in my prayer life. And just in case you're just wondering whether I'm making all of that up, and one of the things that I think is really interesting is if you read the early church father Tertullian on prayer, um, he has the Lord's Prayer, and then he suggests some additional petitions that you might like to add onto the end of the Lord's Prayer, which strongly suggests that Tertullian prayed the Lord's Prayer, as I've just suggested. So that would be a really interesting thing to do during Lent. You start with the Lord's Prayer, and then when you get to the end of it, whether you're doing Matthew or Luke's version, we'll get on to that in a moment, but when you get on to the end of it, then you add your own petitions onto the end, the things that are concerning you particularly that day. Interesting model at any rate. So let us now turn our attention to the different phrases and see where they get us. So we begin with the most famous phrase of all. Our Father about which there has been more written um, in the course of Christian history than anything else. So I will not be telling you everything that you could know about this. But just a few things to draw your attention to. One of the key things at the start of Jesus teaching us how to pray is that Jesus establishes that we are in a relationship with God as parent, God as father. And one of the really key things to recognise about that is that what he's drawing us into is his own relationship. You notice it very clearly in John's Gospel, but it comes out in other Gospels as well, that Jesus relates to God as Father. So to invite us to pray, our Father, is what he's doing is drawing us into his own relationship. And to say, this is a relationship of care and love and support. So we are praying to a being who cares. A being who is in relationship with us already. A being who understands who we really are. So pausing and reflecting on that simple phrase, our Father, is really important. But notice that he doesn't invite us to say, my Father. He says, our Father. So us all together. God is the God who is the Father to us all. And one of the things that that really reminds us of, that you find all the way through the New Testament, is that what we are called into when we have a relationship with Jesus is a family, a family relationship, um, in structured with relationship to the Father and all of the rest of us are brothers and sisters. When people ask the question, what is the most common description of the early church? The most common description of the early church is a family. A family made up of brothers and sisters who all relate to our father. Um, there is something very, very powerful about that. 
I was once um, talking about this about a different passage in a talk, and somebody said at the end um, that he found it very powerful that I said that, um, but also that that's what he had expected when he became a Christian. When he became a Christian, he was invited into this family of God, and what he got was meetings. And I found it a very powerful thing that he said, that actually the idea of Jesus, what Jesus is teaching us about time and time again in the Gospels, is that we are invited into a new set of relationships. A set of relationships that are, frankly, quite disconcerting. Jesus is very radical when it comes to families. He doesn't say, you all just take your own family, live in your own little bubble and don't worry about anyone else. Remember very strikingly, when his mother and brother and sisters came to see them, he said, these are my mother and brother and sisters. He completely dismantles the understanding of family and reforms it with God as father. So it's a radical and challenging teaching as well as a relationship one. I do feel the need to say to some of you who will be thinking that the word Abba means daddy. No, it doesn't. Um, one of the really key things that has um, grown up in New Testament scholarship is the understanding, um, it, the, the scholar who first came up with it is someone called Joachim Jeremias, who was writing at the end of the 20th century, who said the important thing about Jesus inviting us to say Abba is that he was inviting us to call God Daddy. And um, if you want to make New Testament scholars grind their teeth behind you, then you will say that um, in their presence. Because actually, there is no evidence anywhere in the first century that the word Abba was used to mean daddy. Because it was the first century and not the 20th or 21st century. And in the 20th and 21st century, relationship between children and fathers is one of informality. Um, whereas in the first century, the relationship between children and fathers was one of formality. Both are intimate, but you would never dream in a first century context to address a parent in such a, um, an informal way. It was a very formal relationship. So while we today might say that our understanding of God is informal in that way, you can't say that that's what Jesus would have meant, because actually Jesus would have had a different um, understanding of what families meant in that particular sense. So probably not daddy, but definitely an intimate, formal relationship with father. Right, let's move on to the next phrase. And we're going to take the next phrases um, as a clump <coughs> Because one of the things you may not notice is that actually Jesus then in, um, encourages us to have three petitions that we pray, which all mimic each other. May your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the way in which we normally say on earth as it is in heaven, we imply that it is affecting the may your will be done. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It mu looks much more likely that that phrase on earth as it is in heaven goes with all three. May your name be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's like that, that final phrase governs all the other three. So let's start with on earth as it is in heaven, because that is one of the key things that we are praying for. We are praying for the unification between heaven and earth. Jesus is encouraging us to recognize that God who loves us as a father loves the, his children um, is as close to us as possible, that heaven is just a touch away, that it is possible to look up, as you'll remember in many gospel accounts, and see God seated in heaven. So on earth as it is in heaven is to say, may it exactly be on earth as the experiences in heaven, that God is worshipped eternally, that God's rule 
of justice and peace and harmony and inclusion is true both on earth and in heaven. May God's will be done. So you'll recognise that actually rather than there being just three entirely separate prayers, actually those three come together very strikingly. So what do they mean? May your name be hallowed. One of the really important things to recognise about that is may your name be holy. The name of God was very important throughout the entirety of the biblical tradition. And recognising the nature of God came through understanding his name. You will probably know that in the ancient world, one's name told you about who one was. So there was a very important naming of people because it told you about who they were. So if we are to make God's name holy, then actually God's name is re reflecting the reality of who God is. God is holy and therefore God's name needs to be holy. And the great vision of the prophets all the way through the Old Testament is that there would come a time in the world when everyone would recognise that God was God. So when we're praying the Lord's Prayer, and you normally skip through that phrase because we've only just got started and we've got to crack on through the prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, is one of the most important things that we're praying. Because we're praying for that moment to come when God is known to be God throughout the world. And when God is known to be God throughout the world, two things will happen. His kingdom will come and his will will be done. So you see how they all fit together. God's kingdom, I said to you, um, if you want to make a New Testament scholar grind their teeth, um, then you um, talked about um, father meaning Abba meaning daddy. If you want to make a New Testament scholar cry, ask them what the kingdom of God is. Um, that is guaranteed to have me in floods of tears on the floor because the answer is, it is so complicated. Have you got a few days spare while we talk about all the different possibilities? And we haven't, so let's do the simple version. Um, but it is, I think, important to recognise that no definition of the kingdom of God works properly. Um, there are all sorts of problems with trying to define it. But in short... If I'm going to try and define it and then hate myself for doing so, um, what I would say is the kingdom of God is God's rule. When God does what God wants in the world, when there is justice and when there is peace, when the, everybody is included, when people know that they are loved by God, that's when God's kingdom comes. When the rich are tumbled from their thrones, when the poor are given what they need to eat, when those who are on the outside discover that they are really on the inside, when there is no longer any injustice, that's when God kingdom, God's kingdom come, comes. And that's what God's rule looks like. A place where what God designed the world to be um, allows to happen on earth as it is in heaven. So in a way, may your will be done is a mimic of may your kingdom come. But you get that idea of those three together um, giving us that vision right at the start of who we are as Christians and what we're being called to do. We make sure that God is known to be God in the world. We act with every fibre of our being to make sure that God's kingdom of justice and peace and inclusion exists in the world. And by doing that, God's will is done. So those three hang together. Next phrase. Give us today our mm, bread. Um, there's a reason why I would mm, Because, ironically, for a word that is very, very important, no one quite knows what it means. It is often the case in... Um, studying the New Testament, that the more important a word is, the less clear it is what it means. So the word in question is epiousion, which only occurs before this moment. Well, it doesn't, sorry, let me begin again. It does not occur before this moment in the gospel texts or anywhere else in Greek. So the first time we find it is in Matthew and Luke's gospel here in the Lord's Prayer. So one of the really hard things to try and do is when you find, if, if you know about ancient Greek and biblical Hebrew, 
one of the things that you will know is if you come across a word and you're not quite sure what it means, what you do is you look at all the other occasions when it occurs, either in the Bible or outside of the Bible, and then you can say, well, here is the kind of the, the map of how it's used elsewhere, and therefore we're going to interpret it like this in the New Testament. It's kind of um, the bread and butter of how you do biblical languages until you come up against a word like this, which does not previously occur in texts. How do you know what it means? Um, well, the answer is you look at its etymology, but etymology doesn't always get you where you need to be, um, and then you guess. So one of the things that is interesting about this word um, is that um, we, the, the usual usage of it is a slight stab in the dark, and then what we do is we look at the later words, so um, it does occur after the Lord's Prayer, obviously, because people start using it, so then you have to try and work out what they thought it meant, and see if you can read back into the text to discover what we think it means. Um, so, give us today our daily bread, is one usual um, go at what it might mean. Um, but actually, it might also mean, give us the bread that we need. And it's also interesting to note that when the Lord's Prayer was translated into Syriac, Syriac is a sister language of Aramaic, so um, Aramaic was the language that Jesus spoke. Syriac is a sister language of that. When they translated it into Syriac, they translated it as... Um, just find the reference here, um, the thing that helps us to flourish, which is quite a nice translation. Give us the bread that will nourish us for today. Give us the bread that will cause us to flourish in this moment. Um, slightly better than daily, don't you think? Um, and I wonder whether um, we can't, of course, change the translation of the uh, Lord's Prayer now. I would be foolish to even suggest it. But you might like to think about it the next time you say it. When you say the word daily, just think that actually it might mean instead, give us the, what we need for today that will help us to flourish. Give us what we need for today that will help us to be nourished and grow in what God needs us to have. So have a think about that um, the next time you say it. And this is where we hit the divergence between Matthew and Luke's Gospels. So from now on, Matthew and Luke's Gospels versions start looking different. So Matthew's version um, is the one that we normally use when we say the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Whereas Luke's version says, give us every day our daily bread. So Matthew's version is, just give me today what I need. Luke's version is, give me today what I need, and then tomorrow, give me tomorrow what I need, and then the day after, give me the day after what I need. So Luke's is a more permanent request. Luke's gone big. Um, Matthew's just gone, give me what I need for today. Um, Luke's gone, give me what I need every day. Um, and it again raises those questions about whether people were discussing whether, in fact, they were asking for what they need now or what they need on into the future. It is possible that Matthew's Gospel has in mind the story of manna in the desert. If you remember manna in the desert, as one of my favourite bits of Hebrew, actually, because um, the Hebrew word manna, means literally, what now? Ma means what, and na means now. So the people of God got up in the morning and went, what now? <laughs> um, which is a kind of a, a, a kind of thing that we say as people of faith over and over again, do we not? And because they said, what now? It's what the bread became called. But I think that if you remember the story about um, the food in the desert, um, the most important thing was they shouldn't gather any more than what they needed for that day. And I think what Matthew's Gospel is doing is focusing on the just focus on what you need for today. 
Um, if you remember the story from the gathering the food in the desert, the people who gathered it for tomorrow because they were worried it wasn't coming back tomorrow, um, all of that went off overnight. And it's almost as though Matthew, in reminding us of the manna in the desert, is reminding us that actually what God calls us to do is to focus on now, um, what is needed now. Um, give me just now what I need. Let's not store up, and again, you'll hear the, the um, teaching of Jesus all over the place, don't store up the things that you might need at some point in the future just in case possibly you might need it. That's not what we're praying for. What we're praying for is what we need right now. But as I say, Luke's gospel just covers himself um, just in case he forgets to pray it tomorrow. Um, he's prayed for it every day, so it's all right. And then we get on to our next phrase. And this is where um, you get the biggest diversion between Luke and Matthew's gospel. Because in Luke's gospel, um, Luke, um, the, Luke, the Jesus in Luke's gospel instructs us to pray, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. The Jesus in Matthew's gospel instructs us to pray, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So, let me explain why that's different and why it's interesting. But let me just also note that Matthew adds an extra bit onto the end of the Lord's Prayer to make clear that actually he hasn't forgotten the sin stuff. So, Matthew says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then we have the do not bring us to the time of trial, which we'll come on to in a moment. And then he says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So he goes on to sin, but he does it as an explanation after the end of the Lord's Prayer rather than as part of the Lord's Prayer. So we have three words at play here, which I think are really interesting. We've got the word sin, we've got the word trespasses, and we've got the word debts. And um, I could spend hours reflecting on um, these three and how they relate to each other because they are very, very interesting. But let me do, again, a short version. The word for sin is hamartia. And the idea of hamartia is of missing the mark. So you're aiming at something and you don't quite get it. That's Luke's word. Forgive us our sins. I've aimed and I've missed. That kind of sin. Matthew's version uses the word, um, and I've completely forgotten it in Greek, but it's the word that means trespass. So the idea there is there's a big line, and you, step over, you, you see the line, and you step over it deliberately. So hamartia is what you might call inadvertent sin. You have a go, and you don't quite get it right. Matthew's gospel is more advertent, deliberate sin, there's a line, do not cross the line, I'm crossing it anyway. So you get the sense that you've got a different kind of sin functioning in each of them. And then the third is really interesting that it's put together with the other two. So the word literally means what we owe to other people or what they owe to us, debts. So it's not really a sin word at all. It's what you owe that you ought to be paying that you haven't yet paid. And it's fascinating that all those three are gathered together, um, two in Luke's Gospel, one in Matthew's Gospel, um, well, actually two, two each in both Gospels. So we've got um, hamartia and um, debts in Luke, and we have trespasses and debts in Matthew. So just really interesting. And you could almost fear the, feel the conversation in the early church about what we're asking for. Um, and what are we really asking for? Are we asking for forgiveness from sins? Are we asking to be let off the debts that we really um, ought to be paying and haven't? And what, what precisely are we asking for? Um, and in a way, I shall leave that question hanging and you can reflect on it. But I would just like to draw your attention to the fact that in case you're not absolutely clear, Matthew makes it as clear as it possibly can be that when you pray this, you should be really, really scared. And I cannot um, 
say enough, I can't overemphasize enough precisely how terrified you should be. Let me read Matthew's gloss again so that you are absolutely clear. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. When we glibly pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Be clear what you're praying. You're asking God to forgive you in exactly the same way that you have forgiven other people. And if that doesn't send a shiver of dread down your spine, um, nothing will. Um, because I don't know about you, but forgiveness is one of the hardest things the Christian gospel asks us to do. Forgiving somebody else and truly, deeply forgiving them. Not just going, it's fine, I'll hold it against you in my heart forever while not mentioning it. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about absolute forgiveness. Um, everybody in this room will have experienced a moment when they, somebody has done something and you need to forgive them. I'm assuming it's more than one, but let's call it one, just for the sake of argument. Um, think about how successful you were in that act of forgiveness. Um, and then think that day in, day out, you pray to God, forgive, me, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. You may like to stop praying it for us for a bit, but it's, it is one of those, as I say, absolutely terrifying things that we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Um, and one of the things that I want to be really clear about is that actually this possibly is the hardest bit of teaching that Jesus teaches us in the entirety of the Gospels, that we have to forgive other people and our forgiveness is dependent on our ability to forgive them. Um, really tough. We can talk about it in questions if you want to pick it up, because I think it's, it's an incredibly hard thing. Um, and I can tell you, if, if you're interested, I can tell you a story about how I learned to do it in one, on one occasion. Um, I've still got 25 others lurking, um, but I've managed to do it on one. Um, and then our final, our final phrase. Lead us not into temptation, or do not bring us to a time of trial. And again, in Matthew's Gospel, um, Matthew makes it very clear what we're praying for in a way that Luke doesn't. So Matthew says, do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. And notice, that's very different from what we normally pray. Um, we pray, deliver us from evil, the general um, abstract thought of evil. Whereas actually, um, Luke doesn't have it at all. Do not bring us to the time of trial, is what Luke says, and then just stops. So there is no version of the New Testament Lord's Prayer that says, deliver us from evil. It says, deliver us from the evil one. And that's really important in Matthew's theology. Because what we're praying in Matthew's theology is that we are freed from the clutches of the devil. I just want to end by reflecting a little bit about Luke and temptation, because it's a really interesting and one of the things that I think is a lens through which you can read the entirety of Luke's gospel is the lens of temptation. Because what happens in Luke's temptation narratives when the devil comes and tries Jesus is that at the end, Luke says, and the devil left him until an opportune time. The implication in Luke's Gospel is the devil's coming back. If you know your Luke's Gospel, you don't have the devil named as coming back anywhere in Luke's Gospel. But what you do find are a whole load of situations in which Jesus is tested. Is he going to be the son of God that he claims that he was coming to be, or is he going to take the easy route? The most obvious one is when he's on the cross. When people come to him as he's hanging on the cross and they say, um, if you are the saviour, save yourself. 
The idea is that if he is able to be the person who saves, he'll be able to come down off the cross. The temptation is that he could go, I really am, and I really can come down off the cross and demonstrate to you that I am, in fact, the saviour. Of course, one of the, thing, the other things I love about Luke's gospel is it's um, utterly ironic and the whole point is that Jesus is saving us by refusing to demonstrate that he can save us because actually the hanging on the cross is the thing that's doing the salvation, if you get the idea. Um, if he had, in fact, come down off the cross, he wouldn't have been saving us at all because he'd have been looking after himself and not saving us. But what you get through Luke's gospel are these moments where Jesus is tested um, are you going to behave like this or are you going to behave like that? There's about four or five that you can find all the way through the gospel where Jesus is challenged um, to um, whether, whether uh, he's tested, he's challenged and tested. And so one of the things I think is very striking in Luke's gospel is that in his Lord's Prayer, he simply prays, do not bring us to a time of trial. Because as we will read all the way through Luke's Gospel, a time of trial is hard to withstand. Whether it is from the evil one or whether it is more generally, being tempted, being tested is really difficult. So there you have the Lord's Prayer. What you have is a really interesting list, I think, as I've said at the start, of headings that give us the idea of how we might pray. We begin by locating ourselves in relationship to God. And then we pray for the inbreaking of everything to do with God in the world, on earth as it is in heaven. May your name be holy, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. And then we pray for the things that we need today, and if we're Luke, and also tomorrow. But we pray for what we need. And then we commit ourselves to forgiving other people so that God will also forgive us. And then, right at the end, we pray, lead us not into a time of trial. Actually, under those headings are the vast majority of what you need to pray for day in and day out. And so when the disciples said to Jesus, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples, Jesus really did. The next time you're tempted to go, I don't know how to do it, remember the Lord's Prayer, because in it, I think you will find a vast amount of wisdom um, that will at least get you started on the journey. There are more things to learn, but it's a really good place to start. Absolutely, I'm a scholar. I'm meant to be a pedant. It's my job. Um, and I think what the, the balance is, why I find it a helpful corrective is that what we're doing is reading our 20th and 21st century experiences back onto the first century and to recognise that there simply wasn't that level of intimacy in the first central century between parental relationships um, as there is today. So in a way, what all it's simply saying is, don't tr try not to read your understanding of relationship with father directly, don't map it completely onto the first century. That doesn't mean, however, that the relationship isn't profoundly intimate. And I think, for me, the really key thing is between formality and informality. Um, that actually, intimacy in a formal relationship is profoundly possible. Um, but if we just say Abba means daddy, then what we're doing is just reading straight from our context into their context. Um, so intimacy is as deep as the word daddy implies. It's just the informality is what we're being cautious about. But also, yes, I'm a pedant. My husband will tell you in so many ways. I will give you an answer from the New Testament, and then I will give you um, an additional answer. Um, there is nothing in the New Testament to imply that forgiveness can only be offered when asked for. Um, all of Jesus' teaching about forgiveness is, does not, he, if you kind of trace it through, there is nothing that I've ever found that says, wait until someone's asked for forgiveness before. The importance of repentance is huge, but that um, it, Jesus never in his teaching about forgiveness says, you don't have to until they're ready for it. Um, New Testament answer. My answer is that... Um, it is a very, it's a big and really complicated subject, and Jesus' teaching on forgiveness, I think, um, isn't 
complete in the sense that I don't think it's lacking anything, but it is one of those where I would like to sit him down and go, right, so in this situation, exactly what happens? Because one of the things that I think is very um, difficult is that often the Christian teaching about forgiveness has encouraged people to go back into situations that are dangerous, that they oughtn't to go back into, to put themselves in the way of um, physical or mental harm. Um, and I, I do not read Jesus' teaching on forgiveness to require us to do that. Um, but there are gaps, as I say, that where I would like to explore it further. So I think it's not about, it's not about forgiveness in the sense of pretending like it never happened, but forgiveness in the sense of um, reforming relationship. Um, and as I said, it's one of the hardest things, um, parts of Jesus' teaching, and one that I wrestle with possibly more than any other, um, which is that you absolutely rightly say, yes, but what about this particular situation? And what about that particular situation? Um, and I think what the Lord's Prayer encourages us to do is wrestle with those really hard questions. And one of the things that I've found really helpful in praying the Lord's Prayer is getting to that bit and kind of mentally in my head going, right, God, we're going to talk about this. When we are in this situation, precisely what are you asking me to do in this particular context? Um, to which I have no great answers, um, but I think it is, the wrestling is part of the issue. Yes, just checking the Greek for you. It's, it's on, yes, I'm afraid, it's on, yes. <laughs> um, yes, I, I just wanted to make sure that I was reading it right. Um, yes, so it is on earth. But I think the thing that is important to recognise are the words that are being used. Um, it's worth just looking at the heaven and the earth word as well. So, and, and I'm, I'm pointing now because in the, um, in the Hebrew and the Greek mind, um, the world was set up in a particular way. So you have earth um, with the dome that is a um, above it with the waters that flow above and below and then heaven is above that um, so the idea is is about levels of heaven and earth so it's not about dirt in this instance it's about that which lies below the heavenly realm um, but the really important thing is that whenever you find heaven described in the bible it's heaven and all that is in it the, um, the angels and the archangels and the cherubim and the seraphim all praising God and God and God's throne. So when heaven is being referred to, it means everything in heaven. By extension, when earth is being referred to, it means everything on earth. So therefore, to say is it on earth or in by, is probably the wrong question to ask because it is everything to do with earth and let everything to do with earth perfectly mimic everything that is, um, is heaven. So uh, although the word isn't quite what you hoped it would be, actually the reality of it, I think, is because it means everything on earth that has breath, um, you know, think about the Psalms, let them praise um, the Lord. Um, so let everything that is in us and out of us, our actions and our thoughts and our, um, um, our decisions, all of those, let them reflect this. So like I say, the, the pronoun's not quite right for you, but um, not the pronoun, um, the... Uh, preposition. Thank you. <laughs> the preposition, <laughs> my, the words left me. The preposition isn't quite right, but actually the theology, I think, matches what you were thinking. I've always read the, the request as being slightly different than that. Not that God deliberately goes, right, it's your moment, I'm testing you now. Um, but that the request is, don't lead us there. Um, could, you, could you get us out of the way? It's almost as though the, the tests already exist in the world. And the request is that God navigates us around them so that we don't um, hit them full on. So I've always understood the Lord's Prayer to be, um, do not bring us to a time of trial. Um, actually, help us to avoid those big testing moments. Um, because when those big testing moments come, they're really difficult. So I wouldn't see God as the author of the tests. I would see God as the one who is able to navigate us around the tests um, when those moments come. Um, though your question still stands, um, it, when God doesn't, why not? So, it's, it, and, and, and 
if I can just finish that final thought, um, that when God doesn't, why not, is the entirety of the question about suffering. You know, the technical theological word is theodicy, the justice of God. Why does God allow an earthquake to happen in Turkey? Why? Um, if I was able to answer that, I would be a much better theologian than I am. Your question is spot on and is exactly what I was thinking about when I was responding to the former question, um, is that there are times when the Christian tradition has been profoundly unhelpful for people who have been in abusive relationships and in abusive situations because it has suggested to them that what, well, it hasn't suggested, it has told them directly that their responsibility is to go back into that situation. And one of the things that I want to be absolutely clear about is that's what, not what I think forgiveness is. I don't think we are ever asked to go back into an abusive and dangerous situation. Um, but what I do know is that when we have kept ourselves out of that dangerous and abusive situation, the tentacles of its power on us still holds. And I speak here from personal experience, um, which I don't want to tell you what it is, but I'm speaking from personal experience, that you can get yourself out of the dangerous and difficult situation, but the tentacles of what it has done to you and how it holds you um, continues for years and years and years. And in my experience, the only way to get out of that is forgiveness, which is not to say that you go back to the person and say, I'm putting myself back here again, or in fact, that you restore any form of relationship. But until you can cut the tentacles, then you're caught in the power of that abusive relationship. So for me, I found forgiveness as the healing thing that has allowed me to be free from the abusive relationship in the past and to move on, um, but not by going back or not by restoring that relationship, but by saying those tentacles are now cut. Now I can live onwards into the future in a way that it no longer um, affects me in the same kind of way most of the time. Well, it's interesting because the word is the usual word for bread, um, which is, um, well, aha, I mean, it's always interesting, isn't it? Um, it is the usual word for the finest quality bread. Um, one of the interesting things that happens in John's Gospel, if you remember, there is the feeding of the 5,000 in which Jesus feeds them barley bread, which is not the word that's used here. Barley bread is the lowest quality bread. Um, it was really cheap. Um, it was often cut with a whole load of gravel so that um, it um, filled you up better but wasn't very good for you. And the word for barley bread was used in the feeding of the 5,000. And the bit that comes after that in John's Gospel is the discourse about the conversation about Jesus being the bread of life, in which this word for bread is used, which is the finest quality wheat bread. Um, so one thing just to notice is that we're not asking for um, really bad quality, bad for us bread. We're asking for finest quality bread, um, which is just interesting to note. But I think you're right that it's not just about bread. It's about um, everything that nourishes us. So although the, the actual word is just a word for bread, I think the sentiment that lies behind it is particularly if you take that Syriac understanding of daily to mean nourishing, um, give us that which will nourish us for today and tomorrow. Um, although it's probably just worth us noting is that for those of us who don't have to worry about whether I'm getting bread today or tomorrow, we can say, doesn't it mean something else? I think if you were not likely to get bread today or tomorrow, you might be much more interested in the actual bread.